Okay, what do you expect? When I preach here, I expect the ushers will at some point walk down the aisles with Bibles to offer them. Ushers, rock it out, pass them out. If you don't have a Bible today, please raise your hand. If you forgot your Bible, if it's sitting in your car, uh, they have one for you so that you can have the paper version. I use the same Bible up here on the stage. So know that. Grab one of those. We'll need one of those today. Um, When you get up in the morning, you have expectations on your day and how life is going to run. When you go to a restaurant that you've been to a thousand times before, you have expectations. When you exercise, maybe you run, you lift weights, you have expectations on what the results might be. When I go to meetings with my colleagues and with others, I have expectations on what will be accomplished in that time. As you consider relationships, those you already have or those you desire, you have expectations. When Pastor Tony preaches, you have expectations on him. When Pastor Joel comes to preach, you have expectations. When I come to preach, you have expectations. This tie I wear today, is this what you expect? Good. Good. It's it's a great tie, but please don't expect it. You'll be disappointed in the weeks to come. I did see someone else in a tie, though. Well done. Well done. Wear it with pride. So I think Pastor Tony has some expectations on us, and it has been communicated over the last 18 months. He has asked the congregation in services. He has come to the staff in meetings and asked, where does Scripture fit in our lives? One of my favorite questions he asked is this, are you enamored with Scripture? I like that. Are you enamored with Scripture? His promptings, his questions, it pushes us into Scripture and ultimately act as a witness to ourselves at how we pursue knowing God. Think about it. Are we enamored with Scripture? We go to Scripture. What do we expect will happen? So I've toyed with these thoughts and really enjoyed asking some people in the congregation and those on staff about what scriptures come alive for them. What scriptures have changed their life, past tense. What scriptures are changing their life right now and what scriptures tend to push them forward towards what I would say maturity. So scripture, let's talk about that for a second. Scripture is a remarkable record of God's redemptive work. Is it over? No, it absolutely is not. God's work continues to this day through the work of the past and in the work of the present. There is an error in thinking this. When, when someone might ask you to share your testimony or you hear someone's testimony, the error is this, that testimony is only about the time we made a choice to follow Christ. Sometimes a testimony isn't wrapped up in a neat little bow and we high-five and butt-slap our way through the locker room of church. Sometimes that testimony is about defeat. Sometimes that testimony is about pruning. Healthy trees are pruned. And in those times, we see the Lord. We have hope in the Lord. We have expectations that His character will remain constant. So I am looking forward to our new series, which is starting today. Here's what you're going to get for the next 16 weeks. 
You're going to hear from the leadership of LEFC about where we as individuals, as families, as people in the church have fit into God's redemptive work. You're going to hear from the preaching team about the times we have been inspired by Scripture. You're going to hear what texts make us come alive, what texts challenge us. The truth in Scripture, I, I said this earlier, basically it holds up a mirror to our lives, and we have to wrestle with what we see in that mirror. And many times as we see those things, our life is set ablaze. It can't go back to what it was because our thoughts and ways of living have been burned up by a righteous fire. When life and scripture meet, something is bound to change. You're going to hear how the word of God has shaken, comforted, challenged, nurtured, and forever changed and is changing who we are and how we think. And we as a team, as a pastoral team, hope you will also be challenged in our series, Ablaze, Life and Scripture Meet. Pastor Tony is on sabbatical, so there might be some questions about how this is going to work. Let me tell you about the preaching team. Even though Pastor Tony is on sabbatical, we still can't get away from the Hunt family. Pastor Randy Hunt, his father, 44 years of full-time pastoring and almost a member of LEFC. Tonight at the congregational meeting, we have a chance to present those asking for membership, and Randy and Leanne, now that they're in the area, are part of that crew. Dr. Ed Sherman, just call him Ed. He's an elder here. He's a key part of the vision and direction of intercultural studies at Lancaster Bible College. We have our elder chair, Corey Mitchell, incredible teacher, and what I love even more, an incredible student of Scripture. We'll have one of our youth pastors, Arthur Woods. We have Pastor Matt, we have Pastor Joel, and myself. If you don't know who I am, if this is one of your first times to LEFC, I'm Nicholas Todd, Minister of Mobilization. If you don't know what that means still, talk to me at the end. A couple things about this team. Our team has varied communication styles, but we're all committed to Scripture. Two, the preaching team fully believes that Scripture can change your life. We pray that you will engage the text with your hearts and your minds and consider what are the next steps in your journey. And three, we don't expect change to happen instantaneously. Personal change, institutional change, regional change, global change, it all takes time. So in our reflection time at the end of our services, this is your chance to say, if this is the truth of Scripture, what do I do next? How does it impact my life and how I live? Scripture has changed how we think, how we interact with others, how we live, how we trust, how we forgive, how we see people, how we see creation, how we rest, how we understand redemption, how we understand love, how we see oppression, how we see grace, how we give grace, how we understand forgiveness, and how we view the divinity and humanity of Jesus Christ. And there is your 16-week outline, so you can listen to it again later. I think what you will hear in this time is a complete overflow of our hearts for the living word that has challenged us and changed us so that we might live differently. I personally get eight chances to share with you how scripture has captured my mind, how it captures my imagination, sends me down trails of history and facts, how it penetrates my heart, and then it turns into a wrestling match. 
The truth is hard sometimes, and you got to fight with it. Are you ready? What do you expect will happen? Put your hand on your heart, on your Bible, on the family members around you as we pray for this series for today and for the path ahead. Heavenly Father, thank you for your scripture that we get to hold it in our hands, that it's in, it's in the language of our church, it's in English, and we get, to, we get to explore it, and we get to talk about it, that we have the freedom to even preach about it and teach it. And Lord, over the next 16 weeks, would you break through the callousness that has formed on our hearts? Would you break through the decades of just life that seemed to get in the way of your truth. Lord, I expect you to change my heart as I continue to teach and explore scripture, and Lord, I pray earnestly that you will change the hearts of the people here. Lord, why might we, we be drawn closer to you? We ask your blessing on this day and the entire series to come. In your name I pray. Amen. So today, we're going to be in Luke 10. Luke 10. Luke is in the New Testament. That's the latter half of the Bible, and it's the third book of the New Testament. We got Matthew, Mark, Luke. If you hit John, Acts, Romans, any of the Ians or Inthians, you've gone way too far. Luke 10, 25 through 37, is all on a single page of the Bible the ushers passed out. Page 725. Page 725. Once you get there, keep your hand there for a moment. I think you all know how I feel about tacos and Taco Tuesday. I received taco fan art after I preached a number of months ago, and this amazing piece showed up via email. Thank you, Eliana. Now, I am not the only one who appreciates the illustrious taco. Dragons. That's right. Dragons love tacos, at least according to author Adam Rubin. In his children's thriller, my word, in his children's thriller, Dragons Love Tacos, he tells the story um, to, to a boy and his dog about how dragons love tacos, but you have to be careful because they can't handle the spiciness of salsa without losing their cool. Well, a taco party is had, and the mild salsa is just too spicy. So as a dragon would, fire is breathed out and the house is burned down. And this, the next page in the book, caught my attention. As the dragons worked with the homeowner to fix things, these words are on the page. Here it is. Why would dragons help you rebuild your house? Maybe they're good Samaritans. Maybe they feel bad for wrecking it. Maybe they're just in it for the taco breaks. <laughs> now, um, despite my love for tacos, it wasn't the taco break concept that I'll be incorporating into my life. It was the maybe they're good Samaritans. The phrase good Samaritan is kind of remarkable. It comes directly from Scripture, but Christians aren't the only ones who use it. It's used in secular writings and press for secular 
audiences. And readers, Christians or not, know what it means. You look up Good Samaritan in a news feed, and time after time, there are headlines about the Good Samaritan. There's a common pattern here. Someone was in need, and a Good Samaritan arrives. They become that Good Samaritan when they respond by helping someone in need. Sometimes it was life and death. Maybe it was justice. Maybe it was finding a missing person. Good things, absolutely. But something just doesn't sit right with me about it all. It isn't wrong. Hear that again one more time. It is not wrong. I just think it's incomplete. Consider the pyramids of Egypt. The picture you see behind you, or behind me, is of the pyramids near Cairo. It's absolutely amazing. These giant structures built in arid climates with, boom, there's a camel. Look at that. There's a camel in that picture. It looks like you just took a camel expedition to go see one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. But when you turn the perspective, when you look from another angle, and you work to have a larger understanding, you get this picture. Aerial pictures of the pyramids give viewers a glimpse into the 20 million people that live in Cairo and what their proximity is to the pyramids. It doesn't take away from their mystery or make them any less, but it does give us a more complete picture. The pyramid view in those apartments. Do they have to pay more for that? <laughs> Today, I want to look at Luke 10, 25 through 37. Luke 10, 25 through 37. Follow along as I read. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. And so too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The experts in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus said, go and do likewise. Now this section of scripture follows what I would call a high point. 
Jesus had previously sent out 72 people to the towns in that area. They had just come back and they were celebrating. They say this, Lord, even the demons submitted to us in your name. It's a moment where the disciples are getting it. Frequently, those close to Jesus are targets of our criticism. How could they not know? They saw him doing all these things. They were with him. They get it in this moment. They understood and they were marveling. Jesus overflows with joy, goes into prayer, and then has a private moment with his disciples where he says, blessed are the eyes that see the things you see. They get it. And then a challenger arises. In traditional first century form, rabbis would sit and discuss God's word. This method allowed others to sit at the feet of the rabbis as they turned God's word into action. Basically, people got together and discussed how to interpret the scriptures and how to live out that interpretation in their lives. We completed a series in Acts a number of years ago, and we see the Apostle Paul saying that he sat at the feet of Gamaliel. And at the end of Luke 10, the same chapter, Mary sits at the feet of Jesus. This teaching method used uh, it used questions as a springboard for conversation. Start with a question. Let's see where the discussion takes us. So this expert in the law in verse 25 is just like Paul. He has been educated under the best and strictly according to the laws of their fathers. And he is zealous for God. He's also saying, you have a reputation, Jesus, but you're mostly unknown. Let's talk. Prove your place in this circle. Show us you are also zealous. So the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? All right. Insert lawyer joke here. <laughs> Lawyers are often used in jokes, but I'm serious when I say this. Let's give lawyers some dignity. They're, they are trained to be thinkers. They are trained to ask questions in a way to draw something out. They're trying to draw out something they already know. Lawyers do not ask questions they do not know the answers to. They have an end goal in mind, and they're trying to get you there. This lawyer has a right answer in mind. But Jesus, expert rabbi, responds with a question. He asks the lawyer about the law and his interpretation of it. The lawyer was ready. Remember, he was a good student of the Torah. This was the book with all the answers on how to live. And he transport his mind to what has been rote memorization for most of his life. He goes back to Deuteronomy first. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commands that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. This is what the lawyer has lived and done since he was a child. He knew the answer. The lawyer then moves to Leviticus and concludes with Love your neighbor as yourself. Boom. Home run. 
I feel like the lawyer contingent in the rabbi circle were probably high-fiving each other with their eyes. Mm, yeah, see that? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, we're there. And it was a good answer. It was a solid answer. Jesus affirms it and prompts him to do those things so that he might live. The lawyer's on a roll, though. Let's keep it going. All that he has been taught, his formal education, his life education, his culture, it's overflowing now. He's excited. He's proud of it. And he's a home country loving machine. And he follows up with another question. Who is my neighbor? And this is a weird question to me. You see, the lawyer is asking Jesus to define a phrase from his own answer. It's like saying, you tell me what I meant when I said it. I can hear the conversation between two people. I'm so sorry. What are you sorry for? Uh, what do you think I'm sorry for? <laughs> Isn't that great? Something else funny about this is the lawyer has already given a clue to his answer. Remember how lawyers don't ask questions they don't know the answers to? Earlier, he quoted Leviticus. Love your neighbor as yourself. Hey, sidebar, when you're looking at the exchange between Jesus and others, or why a person acted a certain way, more and more and more, I find my answers in Leviticus. Consider that when you wonder about the behavior of the Jewish community in the first century. So many answers in Leviticus. Back to it. The lawyer earlier quotes Leviticus with, love your neighbor as yourself. But that isn't the full text. The full text reads, do not go about slandering, uh, do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly, so you will not share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. So, real question, according to this, who is his neighbor? His people. His people are his neighbors. People who are the same, identical. This is important to know that the lawyer has this answer ready. It is a studied, prepared thought that he lives with conviction. Jesus had just told him he was right. So he's looking for justification. Of course he was. He was on a roll with the visiting rabbi where there's agreement, and he's saying, let's keep truth flowing. Without missing a beat, Jesus, master teacher, follows up with a story in response to the question, who is my neighbor? And he begins in verse 30. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. This literally means going down. There's an elevation change between Jerusalem and Jericho. You are literally going down when you leave Jerusalem to enter Jericho, which is below sea level. Modern day hikers write that with reasonable lengthy breaks, stopping to tour around some of the modern sites, you can make this hike easily in eight hours. It's a day's walk. And a walk that those Jesus was speaking to had done before. They knew this path. And they were immediately transported there. 
He's talking about a walk they all have done. They know it. They see it in their heads. So it's somewhere along this journey that the man is attacked. And this is a humiliating attack. They took his clothes and beat him up. He is naked and hurt and needs help. He's not dead, though. He's half dead. He probably wishes for full death based on the humiliation of being hurt and naked on the road. In verse 31 and 32, we have two Jewish religious professionals walk by. First, a priest, and then a Levite. To be clear, all priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests. The Levites that were not priests had responsibilities to assist, to interpret law, to teach, to dismantle transport, and rebuild the tabernacle. It was a requirement in the Torah for Levites between the age of 25 and 50. And this is found in the book of Leviticus. You're listening. Wonderful. Now, we're not done. We're not done. Why didn't the religious professionals help the injured man? Because Leviticus. The injured man probably looked dead. Rules for remaining clean and holy were clear about the dead. Here it is. You shall not approach any dead person, nor defile yourself even for your father and mother. I appreciate it when Jesus says that the priest and Levite pass by on the other side. I feel like it's a bad chicken joke. Why did the priest and Levite cross the road? You know the answer. To get to the other side. They cross the road to avoid the man that appears dead. Now remember that Jesus is talking to people that know this path, this road. This isn't a bad chicken joke, though. Now, let's talk about humor for a second. A good joke, good humor, is a fair hit on some cultural or personal observation. It might press on our expectations, it might press on something, or it might work to dig deeper, but good humor takes intentional, thoughtful work. Think of right now. There is some great political humor, but the best is when political enemies on both sides can laugh at the same joke. They recognize the honesty in it, both sides. That's good humor in my opinion. So with that, let's look at the picture on the screen. This is the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. So, as you look at that, what's on the left of the hikers? A wall. Can't go left. What's on the right of the hikers? A cliff, a rocky drop-off. This road between two cities was a trail a few feet wide. There is no other side. <laughs> His listeners knew that. They had walked it. Master teacher becomes master comedian. A priest and Levite go on a walk to Jericho and cross to the other side. I can hear the people in that room kind of chuckling and chortling. Oh, Jesus, he's so silly, the other side. Bless him. <laughs> Here comes our hero, though. Here comes our hero. As the lawyer is looking to be justified and have the Torah 
publicly proclaimed and exalted as true and right. Stop for a second. Is there anything wrong with that? Absolutely not. This is the spot in the narrative where the hero be a lawyer or the hero be a common Jew that has internalized the law and is acting upon it, acting upon the truth in the Torah. But Jesus' choice for hero is subversive and utterly shocking to the crowd. A good Samaritan. For the crowd, this joke just went too far. It wasn't a joke, though. The real heat began more than 500 years earlier when the majority of Jews returned from the Babylonian exile. Not every single Jew was exiled. Some stayed behind and intermarried with non-Jews. Jews returning from the exile saw these new generations as half-breeds. Not only was their blood no longer pure, but neither was their worship. These half-breeds offered to help rebuild the Jewish temple. They went to the Jewish leaders and said, can we help rebuild this temple? And they were sent away because they would contaminate it. Give that 500 years to percolate in the minds of those, and things can get a little nasty. So when Jesus introduces the story, the hero being the Good Samaritan, a half-breed, an enemy, an individual from a hated group of unfaithful people, the air in the room was gone. There was disgust. This is an impossibility. There is no Good Samaritan. So with a question for reflection... And moving into his conclusion, Jesus asks the lawyer, asks the one with the rich heritage, with rich education, living righteously among his people. He says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? LEFC, what's the answer to the question? A Samaritan. Is that what the lawyer said? The lawyer can't even say those words. His hatred is too deep. The one who has mercy on him. And the lesson has been received. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. Consider yourself. Consider your own story. Who are your enemies? And how has your faith changed over the years, over the decades? Now, tonight we have a congregational meeting. And every time we have a congregational meeting and welcome new members, the new members share their testimony for the congregation to read. It's available for everybody. And I remembered a testimony in our new members packet from spring 2015. This is how it reads. I... And Paul. I'm the 80s born evangelical good girl version of the great apostle. Born to earnest believing parents, I was trained in the way I should go. I invited Jesus to live in my heart at age four and was baptized a believer at age six. 
church and youth group were my extracurricular activities as a teenager. I rocked my biblical studies courses in college. I got an advanced degree in missions. I went to the world short-term as a kid, long-term as an adult, and thrived. In a Christian boast-off, I can hang. It's all meaningless, chasing wind. I have watched countless friends with impeccable Christian pedigrees and achievements, friends, family, member, family members, classmates, colleagues, missionaries, turn in their badges and walk away. Faith didn't work. It was too narrow. The church is broken. And they're right. Their stories, their reasons are true and compelling. I believe for many, desertion is only part of their individual redemption story. I discovered that my credentials don't hold water, that my shame is too great to balance the scale. The yoke of expectations and the call get too heavy. But I know where to go. Jesus. Because Jesus raises the dead, my soul is awake. When Jesus was talking to the lawyer, he was maturing the decades of education and religious life. Religious life says, be nice to the people that you like, to those that are similar to you. And Jesus said here, love your enemies. Walking with Jesus awakens your soul. And I believe your soul will constantly be awakened your whole life when you're chasing after him. And the journey isn't done at any point for you until you're laid in the arms of Christ again. Today, it means identifying those that are your enemies and give them mercies. Don't, don't say, I don't have any enemies. You're dodging the word. We all have our enemies. We all have those people where we can't say their names. Can we give them mercy? It took me 30 years. It took me 30 years to see that Jesus was talking to the lawyer. He wasn't telling the lawyer to be nice to people. He was giving the impossible command that requires constant self-awareness and change, and that is to love your enemies. Love the people that intentionally choose to abuse you, that say you are wrong. So our resentments, our past hurts, our wounds, they create an atmosphere in our hearts and minds that prevent people from ever seeing Christ in us. Here are the questions for today to reflect on. Have you ever considered who is your enemy? Yes, consider who is my neighbor, but what about who is your enemy? Whose name can you not say? What name do you avoid because it stirs hurt, anger, pain, and bitterness? You don't have to go too far, most likely. These people might be in your family. These people are most likely in your oikos. And if you name them here today, you can pray for them here today. So take the time now 
to name and pray for your enemies. Weak. Would you rise with me as we close our service? It's hard to admit at times, but our enemies are candidates for embrace by Christ. Remember also, you are a candidate to be embraced by Christ. Would we know the infinite love of God? Would we be stirred to love ourselves and our enemies? Would we give God our inner violence and resentments, our hurts, our anger, our pain and wounds, our bitterness and our vengeance? Would we move from anger, vengeance, and violence to compassion and mercy in the name of Jesus for the fame of Jesus? Come back next week. For now, go in love.